Hello, everybody. Um, I'm really excited uh, to have so many of you here to talk about food, one of my very, very favorite topics. I apologize if part of the time I seem like I'm hiding behind the podium, but um, they don't make me tall enough or them short enough for, for me to really comfortably stand behind it and still uh, be able to talk to you. Um, so uh, food is the first thing I talk to most of my patients about. Um, first, I get their, um, their brief introduction of who they are, and I guess I should do that because I probably have a disclosure slide here, which says I have nothing to disclose other than a book um, called Holistic Pain Relief um, and my learning objectives. Um, so after I talk to people and just get them to tell me their story, uh, we start talking about food, and why is that so important? So. Uh, basically, it's because every single time you eat, you change your body chemistry. And that's not, um, that's not an exaggeration. You either increase your inflammation or you decrease your inflammation. And when I tell people that, they're initially shocked because they can't believe that that is actually true. Um, but then they also feel empowered because they realize how much influence they actually have over their state of well-being and that it can be something that affects them quite quickly. So a quiz, what has a profound effect on the inflammation and immune system uh, and our mood um, and is not a drug? Has ten, <laughs> chocolate, good one, that's a good guess. <laughs> 10 times as many cells as us. Bacteria, Bacteria another, we're getting there. And 200 times as much DNA as us. The microbiome, that's it. So microbiome is the mass of microorganisms that inhabit us. We are more, based on DNA and cell numbers, we are more them than us. It's really pretty impressive. When you look internationally uh, at the way in which the microbiome changes from uh, country to country, from part of one country to another, uh, from... Um, influence of, uh, of drugs, of pesticides, of so many things that, that do influence the microbiome. When you, you look at the variety, you realize very quickly that we have, because we've entered the study of microbiomes so late, where there are so many um, items, so many things in the environment that influence the microbiome, it's really hard to know what, what's a normal microbiome, what's an optimal microbiome. Um, if for, I know some of you will have heard a little bit of this from the morning session, but I, I see a lot of new faces. Um, so, for example, in Africa, in ill children, if they study the microbiome, there is one bacteria that stands out as indicating the prognosis of whether that child has a good prognosis or a poor prognosis for, for survival. Any guesses as, as to what that, mi that microbe might be? that bacteria. It's H. pylori. Except that H. pylori indicates a good prognosis, not a poor one. The kids with H. pylori survive. The kids without H. pylori have a lesser chance of survival. I was actually pretty stunned when I read that. There was no explanation for it. Um, subsequent reading on, my, on um, H. pylori, it's a pretty ubiquitous bug. Um, and only some, of, some species of it are, um, are invasive and therefore causing the problems we're seeing in the West that we're attaching to H. pylori. Now, um, the gut contains 70 to 80% of our immune system. It lines the gut. So we have a very close juxtaposition of our in our, of what comes in, our intestinal wall, through the, uh, through the intestinal wall straight into the immune system. Um, and right next to that is also enough uh, nerve cells for a small mammal's brain, and we produce the majority of our neurotransmitters in the gut. We always thought, I always learned, that neurotransmitters are you know, nerve cell talking to nerve cell or nerve cell talking to muscle cell, but this is the gut. Um, that's, that's pretty amazing in terms of that level of influence. 
um, uh, from the work of, of Candace Pert, uh, who was the first person to discover or be able to um, isolate. Um, uh, there are some seats down here at the first two rows um, on both sides. Um, the, um, so Candace Pert was the first person to be able to isolate opioid receptors from the brain from human brain. So she was pretty important to what we do. She went on to being a very major contributor to a receptor uh, science. And you know, when I went to, to medical school, there were four, four uh, neurotransmitters. Uh, then there was a fifth that was discovered and everybody celebrated. Now, now we have hundreds of them. And the connection between the immune system and the central nervous system is very, very closely tied. Uh, every time they find a new neurotransmitter, they check the monocytes, and it turns out that the monocytes have receptors for them every single time. And what's even more interesting is that when we are under stress, the monocytes start to produce neurotransmitters. So, when we think of all that, where is our mind? Where, where, does it, where does it reside? If our monocytes are producing neurotransmitters, if our gut is producing um, more neurotransmitters than our brain does, um, we really have to recognize the, the unity of, the, of all of our system. And we're all, uh, we're all very, very connected. And previously we thought there was a blood-brain barrier that it actually um, uh, created uh, a block, and now we know that the immune system, um, we found a circulation at the back of the brain that wasn't recognized before, that means that the, the immune system is intimately connected with the brain. There is really no barrier. Um, what's the difference between these two mice? Genetically, they're identical. It's the microbiome. Uh, they were fed differently, their microbiomes were, were manipulated, but if you take the um, the microbiome from the skinny mouse and put it into the fat mouse, it will turn into a skinny mouse. We are what we eat. To be more specific, we are what we ingest, digest, and absorb, and the microbiome has a very key role to play in that. We, uh, we need uh, the microbes in order to fully digest our food and to facilitate um, uh, transport across the, uh, the uh, intestinal wall. Now, what's interesting is that under normal circumstances with a good healthy microbiome, with a good healthy gut, um, we have our, um, our cells. You know, if this is one cell of the gut and this is another, um, they have that much space between them tip of my fingers, which basically you can see no space. They're, they're stuck together. And there are tight junctions that, that uh, create that, that um, uh, the cement between those two, between the two cells. And then there are many things which, uh, which can create gaps. Uh, and that creates something that used to be called leaky gut by the um, non-medical, non-allopathic community. And now it's called, it's now accepted by the non-allopathic, by the allopathic community, and it's called increased permeability. And so it's antibiotics, it's non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, it's gluten if you're sensitive to gluten, it's dairy if you're sensitive to dairy, it's a lot of food additives, a lot of pesticides, and that does give us increased intestinal permeability. And there's a tremendously rich literature on it as leaky gut. And we're starting to develop a, a richer um, literature on it as, the, uh, as uh, allopathic medicine, conventional medicine accepts it as well. But it's been around and recognized for a long time. Now, Elie Metchnikoff, back in 1907, 1908, uh, received, was a co-recipient for the Nobel Prize for Immunology, and he discovered macrophages, phagocytosis, and cell-related immunity. But he also identified the microbiome as key to human health. And it took us about 60 years till we started doing any research on this again. We lost a lot of time. I did a, a search a couple of years ago for an article I wrote um, on articles in PubMed on microbiome. And there were about 17 to 18,000 articles written at that time. And 90% of them had been written in the previous 10 years. 
and I was able to search everything back to, uh, to 1950. But there was just a tiny little bit written up until 10 years ago, and all of a sudden we have this huge explosion of information on microbiome, which is really, truly fascinating. But again, we have to keep in mind that everything we're learning about this is the, totally the tip of the iceberg, and we're, we're studying it under altered circumstances. There is no place on Earth that is free from the influence of pesticides, and, and contaminants. Our, uh, our, we, have, our, we have recorded in the first world 80,000 new chemicals on the market in the past 75 years. And who knows what's doing in the second and third world. Um, uh, and all of those are spreading throughout the world. So for example, you can go search uh, or test um, um, cute little things with flippers, uh, penguins, in, in, Anta in Antarctica, <laughs> sorry. Um, you can test uh, penguins in Antarctica, and you can find DDT in them. Well, DDT was never used in Antarctica, and DDT was banned in the rest of the world in 1972, and yet it's, it's current now in Antarctica. So these pesticides are everywhere. The microbiome we're studying is an altered one. And I, the reason I'm emphasizing that is just because we tend in medicine to be very dogmatic about what we know. And we, uh, and we, need, to have a, a, we need to have a context for it. We need to understand that what we think we know isn't everything that can be known. That's all. Um, Okay, good and bad bacteria. He even predicted, Metchnikoff even predicted um, uh, fecal transplants. Now, food is information. And what is the information we want to give ourselves? Is that it? We know that, that for 8 to 12 hours after you eat that kind of food, you have an increased chance of having a myocardial infarction. And there's a, there's a British uh, physician, very un-British of him, I don't know why he would do this. He recommended that whenever you go for a fast food meal, you should be able to order a statin with that. <laughs> um, this is the classical Mediterranean diet, and we'll talk about some of the different kinds of diets as we go along. This is a diet fresh. Uh, lots of fresh food, fresh vegetables, fruit, uh, lots of things that grow in the ground. And primarily, that's what we should be eating. So I like uh, Michael Pollan's assessment, which is eat food, uh, not too much, and mostly vegetables. And when he says eat food, that's not food. That's a food-like substitute. There's very little in there that is actually food. Maybe the slice of tomato can be considered food. Um, but when uh, Ronald Reagan's administration tried to have uh, French fries and uh, ketchup classified as two vegetables for the school lunch program, uh, that was pretty awful. Um, so where, where do we get our information about food? Who do we trust? So for so many generations, we have trusted the USDA. USDA is the United States Department of Agriculture. I'm Canadian. We even took our recommendations from the USDA. We, we used them as our benchmark and really followed suit. I, I am living in the US now, but I, I did a lot of my medical training and practice in Canada. And this is what they had. Look at this. They actually went against the advice of their own nutritional advisors in order to publish this. This was built by the lobbyists. This was built by food industry. So all of those uh, refined carbohydrates that we have down there, they don't say anything about that not being refined. Six to 11 servings. Vegetables, three to five. Fruit, two to four. Meat, poultry, fish up here. And fats and oils. This was, these were the days when fats were vilified, and we now know that that's absolutely inaccurate, and there was never any evidence to support any of this. Talk about evidence-based medicine. So now they've come up with this. So, okay, it's a little better. We have a little more than a quarter vegetables, but grains are still here, and they say at least half whole grains. That means the other half can be Twinkies and Cheerios. What are they thinking? <laughs> 
Um, protein is here, pretty heavy, but we're a protein-centric society, and we always connect protein with animal protein. We don't think vegetable protein, grain protein, and fruits are okay. But look at this. Where, who, made, who made dairy? Why is that a good idea to be an obligatory food category? Most of the world does not consume dairy in their adult life. They do just fine, thank you very much. Ethiopian women who do, do not get osteoporosis, true they are born with higher bone density to start, but that's probably because their mothers have higher bone density to start. From their skin, they make 10,000 IUs daily of vitamin D. They consume about 200 milligrams in total of calcium. No osteoporosis, no milk, no dairy. So what, why is this there? So let's look at what the vision statement is of the USDA. To expand economic opportunity through innovation. Innovation doesn't give me the idea that I go out in the backyard and dig up my own carrots and pick my tomatoes. Innovation is business. Innovation is processed foods. That's who they are beholden to, and that's who we have been taking our information from. So I don't know, is it possible to say we should take their, their advice with a grain of salt? Is that a bad, bad analogy? So let's go back and see what the World Health Organization is saying about our current food situation. Uh, industrialization has dramatically changed how we, food, how we grow our food and how we process it, how we prepare it for consumption. So in the United States, we are very dependent on processed foods. I, I have to sometimes very explicitly explain to patients what food is. I once had a nurse in my practice many years ago, and this was actually in Canada, and she was eating so much junk food, and, and she was feeling awful, and she had two kids. And I thought, you know, I, I, she's been my patient for years and years, but now that there's two kids in the picture, we have to really talk about what she's eating. So I took some time, and I said, look, you have to do home-prepared, home-cooked food. So she went away, she took this to heart, she came back a couple months later, she said, you would be so proud of me, we are preparing our food at home every single day, and my neighbors just can't believe it. There are so many frozen pizza boxes outside in front of my house every, every garbage day that they just can't believe what I'm doing. So then I had to back up and say, okay, frozen pizza is not what I consider home-cooked food. We had to go through the whole deal and give her recipes and all that stuff. And I have to say, I have more uh, smart phrases for recipes on my EPIC, uh, on my electronic medical record, than I do for drugs. I, I send people out with more recipes than drugs. A World Health Organization has taken the stance that factory farms are not a sustainable way to grow food and to feed our planet. They are saying that because factory farms and the, the um, monocultures that they grow, they are devastating the earth. What we need are small organic farms. That is their position, and that is the, what their studies are showing. This fosters biodiversity. Um, in general, we have a calorie surplus in this country, and we have a micronutrient deficiency. And there are, there are many studies documenting micro, uh, micronutrient deficiencies. We are growing food on the same, um, same land over and over again. We do not let our land go fallow. We don't let it recover. The pesticides uh, we use uh, deplete nutrients. The fertilizers we use do not fully replenish the earth. So the foods we grow now are estimated for many of the foods to have about 50% of the micronutrients that the, that the previous foods had 75 years ago. That's a big drop. We don't need to eat 50 times more because we don't need the calories. Um, and we don't actually have the same activity level as we've had in previous uh, generations. So we do, have, we do have issues that we need to, to look after. So um, food choices increase or decrease inflammation uh, when we have the wrong fats, sugar, refined grains, and processed foods that increases inflammation, uh, changes our microbiome. Uh, chronic inflammation is at the root cause of most of the chronic diseases that we face, uh, whether it's diabetes, whether it's cancer, all of those things, uh, uh, arthritis, 
chronic pain conditions, they all thrive in acidic and pro-inflammatory environments. And those two things go hand in hand. Our mitochondria function best at a very narrow range of pH between 6.5 and 7.5. If you want to have good function of any system in your body, if you want to have energy production in any of your tissues, you need to have functioning mitochondria. When we have excess inflammation, that increases acidity, which decreases pH. And something instructive you can do is check your first morning urine pH with just little pH paper that is, has uh, 0.2 uh, segments. So it's you know, 6.0, 6.2, 6.4, and see where you fall in a first morning urine. First morning urine, if you have been lying down for at least six hours, estimates most uh, closely what your 24-hour tissue pH is. And, uh, and it's quite instructive to find that, and then, and then to eat different foods and see how it varies. Um, chronic diseases account for 7 out of 10 uh, deaths each year. About 133 million Americans, nearly 1 in 2 adults, live with at least one chronic illness. It accounts for 75% of our, of our health care costs. High glycemic foods make up 85 to 90% of our carbohydrates that our adults and children eat. So for example, things like Cheerios, whole grain Cheerios, um, some of the other whole grain, highly processed, uh, big commercial manufacturer foods, uh, grains, cereals in particular, um, have a very high glycemic index. Sugar, sucrose, has a glycemic index of 62. Um, glucose, if you ingest straight glucose, that is set as an arbitrary 100 for, for a glycemic index. And everything else is supposed to be lower. But it turns out that instant mashed potatoes and, and rice, uh, white rice flour have an, a glycemic index of over 100. How do they spike your, your glucose, your blood glucose, faster than actually ingesting glucose? But they do. And things like the cereals I mentioned earlier, uh, they have a glycemic index in the 70s, 72 to 75. That means that it's actually healthier to eat with a spoon out of the sugar bowl than it is to eat those cereals. So when they advertise themselves as being part of a healthy breakfast, just be aware that the part of the breakfast that's healthy is not what's inside the box. And somebody once studied the box and found that the box was healthier for rats than the cereals were. <laughs> Um, so we have to be careful about the types of carbohydrates we eat and whether or not they're highly processed. The unprocessed, the whole grains, steaming whole grains, cooking whole grains can be wonderful, very delicious, and not that time-consuming. But we have to get used to it. The whole idea of convenience foods, do you know when that started? started after the Second World War, when they had to retool the entire industrial complex in the, in the first world, in the United States in particular, and they didn't know how to sell the stuff that they needed to sell. So they came up with the whole idea of foods need to be convenient, and that led to what we now see in supermarkets, where we have about 50,000 different products in an average supermarket, and the vast majority of those are not food. They are food-like substances, but they are not food. The average U.S. person eats 150 pounds of sugar a day, uh, I was going to say a day, not quite that bad, a year, half a pound a day. That means that somebody out there is eating nearly a pound a day because I don't consume my half pound, and I'm sure many of you don't either. So there's this huge consumption of sugar that is changing the microbiome, inflaming us, but it's also more addictive than cocaine. And so getting people off of sugar is tough. And you lose your sensitivity for sugar just like you lose your sensitivity for salt if you are addicted to it and if you're eating it all the time. And the way to get off it is, is to be off for five days. You can do it with salt and for sugar. We, do it. we tend to do it more in medical practice with salt because of hypertension. We have to get people off salt so we're used to that. 
but uh, sugar follows this follows suit the same way. I had to do it with my father at one point. He was salt addicted and had high blood pressure, and I got him to stop salt for five days, and suddenly he said, I, I can't believe how good this food tastes. I, I, it was just tasting salt before, and now I can actually tell the difference between the different foods. It's the same thing with sugar. And they put sugar in foods. 80% of our foods have sugar in them. 80% of our processed food comes with sugar. Our processed meats have sugar. Why, are they, why is there sugar in processed meat? It's because it makes you eat more of it. It's because it creates good customers for processed foods. And do you notice when you go into, certainly onto all the food stores, but even into places that you don't associate with food, like pharmacies, like gas stations, what's all around the cash register? stuff to, to satisfy a craving for a rapidly falling blood sugar. It's all high glycemic foods, snack foods. Now, good news is half a teaspoon a day has been shown to reliably reduce your blood sugar and your cholesterol because it reduces your blood sugar by about 6%. Now, the cause of, of uh, cholesterol, high cholesterol, uh, highly oxidized cholesterol, and it's the, the damaging part of cholesterol is the small particle LDL that's oxidized. The cause of that is sugar and high glycemic foods. It's not fats. Fats are, are the minor component of it for the vast majority of people. Some people are fat responsive, but not the majority. The other thing is, is that vinegar will also lower your blood sugar very, very nicely, 20 to 30 percent. And so having, making sure that there's vinegar in your salad dressing or having it uh, on some, on some sort of food can be very, very uh, helpful for you. Refined grains, even whole grains can spike blood sugar. You just have to see, uh, look up the glycemic index and that's a doable thing online fairly easily these days. So these are the things that damage uh, the microbiome. So I've been through the food things. Aspartame and sucralose, let's just have a word about those. They give you brittle uh, brittle uh, sugar. Brittle, brittle diabetics uh, are often that way because of aspartame and sucralose, the very things we instruct them to take and to use. So just think of a better business model. Creating something, a, a two chemicals that you have convinced the public and the medical profession that they are good for diabetics and what they do actually is make it harder to control blood sugar. They cause you to gain more weight, and this has been shown quite reliably. Diet sodas are as bad as sugary sodas for getting people to gain weight. Um, and, and then people have difficult to control blood sugar, so they just think they need more of the product that is actually causing the problem or helping to cause part of the problem. Um, so aspartame and sucralose, aspartame turns into methanol and formaldehyde in your body at 80 degrees. Who thinks that's a good idea? Um, sucralose is a chlorinated sugar molecule. They were trying to develop a chlorinated pesticide at the time, and it was a mistake. The mistake, the, the story's written on the, uh, on the internet in terms of how they mistakenly found it was sweet and uh, was zero calorie, but um, comes along with chlorine that gets absorbed. Antibiotics, pesticides, carrageenan. Carrageenan is started out as a good idea. Carrageenan is a product made from seaweed, and it was used as a texturizer in foods. And then they started doing it more and more and more until carrageenan was in everything, and we realized it had very adverse effects on the microbiome. So now the manufacturers have stopped using that, and now they're using guar gum and all these other things that are also texturizers. So um, just a question for you all. Um, it's very popular now to use milk substitutes. So for example, um, there was a study done by Consumers Reports on almond milks. Um, in the average commonly available almond milk, how many nuts do you think were harmed in making a quart of almond milk? Any ideas? You know, a thousand, a hundred, Five, five is close. Three. Three. So where do they get the flavor? Where do they get the texture? From this stuff, from these chemicals that they put in there. So um, my website has a great recipe, really easy way to make your own almond milk or other kind of nut milk. Uh, PPIs are a huge damager of... Um, 
of, uh, of the microbiome. And they also cause a lot of other problems. Nonsteroidal anti-inflammatories uh, kill more people. These statistics were from 2010 before we had the latest generation of HIV drugs. Uh, they killed more people in that year than HIV did. And that, and that was in a limited population of NSAIDs users. It was uh, a hospitalized population and only for rheumatoid arthritis and osteoarthritis. So everybody who's taking them for headaches, for menstrual pains, for strains, for aches, for back pain, they weren't included in those stats. Those are dangerous drugs. So let's talk about a few good things. Uh, DHA and EPA are the omega-3s that are active in fish oils. They can be used, they're very analgesic, they improve mood as well. And there are studies, I'm sorry that the, um, uh, you'll see on the slides there are the references for these, uh, but they're just written very, very small on these slides the way they've, uh, the way they've changed them. The dosage that was done was three grams of DHA plus EPA, which in a good quality fish oil will translate to six grams of fish oil. And, uh, and so that's six of the large capsules or a teaspoon and a half of the liquid. And you can now get them in orange flavor and such. And people tend to find them quite acceptable. And I'm just realizing I don't have my, my timer. There we go. Um, and this is, uh, this is a reference, so I'm just going to skip through the references. Vitamin D, it's been uh, shown over and over that uh, the chronic pain population is vitamin D deficient. Fibromyalgics are extremely vitamin D deficient, and on the next page I've got the references for that. Um, in general, this uh, study from Mayo Clinic showed that uh, patients, pain patients without, without adequate vitamin D levels uh, uh, stay on opioids twice as long and take twice as much. Um, side effects of vitamin D are decreased inflammation, increased bone density, less susceptibility to infections such as the flu, less diabetes, less autoimmune disorders, and uh, possibly cardiac and brain health. They've been giving vitamin D to uh, Finnish children uh, in Finland uh, for the last 30 years. They started 2,000 IUs at birth, and they've had less uh, disease of many, many kinds, including less schizophrenia in baby boys. It, overdose is extremely rare, and you have to get up to 150 nanograms per mil before you start seeing um, overdose uh, symptoms. And it's easily reversed by stopping uh, the, uh, the, the vitamin. Uh, magnesium uh, inhibits the release of acetylcholine from motor end plates and therefore is the best muscle relaxant out there. People who have nocturnal leg cramps, leg cramps at any time, uh, restless legs is often leg cramps and will go away with uh, magnesium. Um, uh, magnesium depletion facilitates neuromuscular excitability and arrhythmias. And many drugs that we take are depleting of magnesium. So if you just do a Google search uh, of which drugs deplete magnesium, you're going to come up with a whole host of them, including the opioids. Um, recent rat studies also have shown that the, that the NMDA receptors are responsive to magnesium and that it may be uh, worthwhile to take for neuropathic pain. I use it a lot with neuropathic pain with some benefit. Um, it is underdiagnosed, uh, and hypomagnesemia is not necessarily present in the same way as our serum calcium remains pretty stable in the, in the face of horrendous deficiency of calcium in, in, in our bones. The, the blood system uses the bones, the muscles, the tissues as a reservoir from which to draw in order to keep a normal uh, serum level of both calcium and magnesium. So that doesn't tell you the story. Um, what I do with people is I tell them to take, get a good quality magnesium and take as much as they can without getting diarrhea. And it needs to be uh, a chelated, a, um, uh, it can be the glycinate, uh, a mixed uh, salts, but not an oxide, not a sulfate. Citrate is okay, uh, as long as it's not the one that, that is designed to do a colonoscopy prep. Um, uh, in general, my experience is that the standard drugstores, the large chain drugstores, do not carry good quality magnesium. You had a question. Yeah, 
target blood levels, um, if you look up um, Holick, H-O-L-I-C-K, uh, his website, he has a whole discussion of all the science behind what to look for. And there's, there is some controversy because you improve osteoporosis once you get to 30. Um, but you, get, uh, you may get less pain, uh, less cancer, less autoimmune disorders at higher levels. So if 150 is your, is your upper limit of, of toxicity where you're looking at you don't want to go above that. I often tell people that I, that I think they'd be fine getting themselves up to 75 um, as, a, as a target level. Um, and uh, diabetes is affected uh, positively. Blood sugar improves with uh, adequate magnesium. And uh, diabetes, as we all know, is a major problem for our, our target audience, our, our patients, uh, because diabetes is a major cause of pain, decreased healing, neuropathy. Um, there was a cardia study that looked at inflammation and, um, uh, and magnesium, showing that there was improvement in inflammatory markers from magnesium alone. Side effects, it improves constipation and irritable bowel. So people who have even diarrhea with irritable bowel, some of them will not react well to magnesium. They will get diarrhea because they're not absorbing anything through their gut. Their microbiome is so disturbed that they can't tolerate any at all. But that's, that's maybe 10% of that population. The other 90%, their irritable bowel goes away with magnesium. It improves sleep disorders, painful conditions, fibromyalgics, uh, people with myofascial pain. It improves bone health, and it's needed for collagen formation. Collagen is what we heal with. And in order to have adequate collagen, you need vitamin C, you need sulfur, and you need magnesium. So it's the vitamin C and magnesium we tend to be deficient in. People who are eating eggs, the brassica vegetables, um, onions, garlic, that family of foods, they will have enough uh, sulfur. The adverse effect is diarrhea with overdose. So it basically cures itself. It clears the system of any excess. And here are the references. Turmeric is one of my favorite topics. Uh, turmeric is an absolute superfood. Um, it's being studied for osteoarthritis. It's being studied for perioperative pain. So pre-treating patients with turmeric um, before surgery and giving it to them afterwards decreases the amount of opioid and non-steroidal uh, anti-inflammatories that they require, which uh, improves their long-term recovery in terms of gut recovery from general anesthetic, um, and, uh, and they do quite well. Um, the other things that, that turmeric does is we know it creates, it helps us create new brain cells. Few things do that. Exercise does and turmeric does. It's being studied for reversal of cognitive dysfunction. We've already been able to show an association with preservation of cognitive function, but there are now a few studies that actually show reversal of cognitive dysfunction. It is, it contains non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. It contains six of them that we've identified so far, and maybe since the last time I read the literature a couple of months ago, it's gone up to seven. They keep finding new active molecules within the tuber. And in that way, it's able to be more subtle in its, uh, in its effect on the inflammatory system. So non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, part of it, the problem with them is that they work too well. They cut out all the inflammation. Um, or too much of it at any rate. And it happens that the first step in healing is an inflammatory step. And turmeric seems to preserve that. There have uh, been uh, very, very few, uh, there, there really aren't uh, ad, the same kinds of adverse effects with uh, turmeric as there is with, um, with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories of the pharmaceutical variety. Ginger is a related compound. It also has extremely good anti-inflammatory effects, is being studied for all types of pain, menstrual pain, um, arthritic pain, um, uh, preservation of cartilage. Yes? Yes, it is. The, the question was, can you just get ground turmeric from the spice section? You can. I recommend getting it in bulk. On my website, I have a recipe for how to make something called golden milk, which is an Ayurvedic recipe. It's cooking turmeric, which from my own experience with it, I think it actually activates the turmeric. Uh, so I sometimes, I mean, when I'm traveling here, I don't take a, a, a turmeric paste with me that I've cooked. So I take the capsules. Um, I, they work. 
I don't think they work quite as well as the cooked turmeric, though. So I think it's worth trying both. Uh, curries are some of my favorite recipes and some of the ones I frequently give out to people. Um, it, it, it does um, uh, increase bleeding time slightly, uh, but it is being studied by surgeons for surgical intervention. Um, uh, so we, 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 need to, we need to be cautious. If somebody's on Plavix, I'm very careful. I, I tell them to go very slowly or to certainly make sure they're speaking with their hematologists and, and determining uh, whether it's okay for them. Um, Non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, I, I, the previous slide was the deaths that I had told you about before uh, in comparison to uh, HIV. Uh, small bowel injury even in asymptomatic people. These were asymptomatic subjects, 71% of them had endoscopic evidence of damage with no symptoms while they were taking NSAIDs. So we, we're used to evidence-based therapies. Uh, we all know the, the disaster of Vioxx. We thought that was evidence-based. So who provides the evidence? How good is it? Proton pump inhibitors, we've been giving them out like candies. We've been telling people it's safe to stay on them. And the, the strength of the evidence was what the drug rep told us because there was never any evidence that it was safe to stay on them long-term because they never did any studies on it long-term. And once they started looking at the damage that occurred, the FDA, which is a conservative organization if there is one, finally said, you know what, no longer than three months unless it's a life-threatening situation. So if you've got Zollinger Ellison, okay. They're even questioning it now. There's a really wonderful article uh, called um, Have We Kissed the Right Frog? Uh, that's, I believe, in BMJ from a few years back. And it's from a, a, an intensivist who basically said, we're doing so much damage to people. Right now in, in the intensive care arena, we are getting the best gains in longevity and survival by doing less. And, he, and one of the things he talked about was the use of PPIs very liberally in that setting and saying, I, I don't know that it's the right thing to do. Um, so nutrient deficiencies that are associated with pain, vitamin D, B12, magnesium, calcium, omega-3 oils. Vitamin C also. Vitamin C is needed for tissue repair, and um, many are deficient in it. Um, most, most other animals, most other mammals, make their own uh, vitamin C out of glucose. We have lost the enzyme that converts glucose into vitamin C. Maybe then we could justify eating 150 pounds of sugar a year if we still had that enzyme, but we don't. Um, uh, it, it also helps us chelate heavy metals. These days with the talk of Flint, Michigan, uh, lead and mercury, we know mercury's in our fish, we know lead is in our water, and it's not just in schools, it's in our homes as well. I've had many patients over the years who've had lead in their homes and, and significant pathology from it. Um, vitamin C is, is extremely helpful. So, uh, for example, a 70-pound goat makes about 12 grams of vitamin C a day. When it's under stress, it makes 10 times that much. Um, we're told that it's fine if we ingest 400 to 800 milligrams. Does that make sense? Does that, does that compute? Do we know that that's optimal health, or is that just enough to keep us from getting scurvy? We don't know that. I can't say that I know one way or the other. I can just say that uh, you know, it, it seems a little out of line with the rest of the animal world. Uh, myofascial pain is the most common cause of pain, and I'm not talking about that here, but I'm just giving you some references. So let's just talk about some basic dietary advice. Um, I, I recommend that over half the plate should be vegetables at every meal, and I tell people to do that at breakfast as well. So sautéed vegetables, my own trick is that whenever I cook vegetables for dinner, I cook three times as much as I know I'm going to eat or my family's going to eat. And therefore, they're always around. If I get hungry after dinner, if somebody does, there's vegetables to snack on. There's vegetables there that I can eat while I'm making my breakfast. There's vegetables there that I can put into a sack and give to somebody for lunch or take for lunch. Grains should be whole grain and unprocessed as much as possible. Now, you know, we do live in the modern age, and there are wonderful, amazing things out there. There are croissants and baguettes and cupcakes, and we shouldn't be depriving ourselves all the time. But there's an 80-20 rule. Be good 80% of the time, and then choose your, choose your battles. Choose where, what you want to cheat on. Make sure it's worth it. And when you cheat, 
really enjoy it, okay? <laughs> really savor it. Take the time. Don't feel guilty about it. Say, I am, you know, I'm eating this cupcake. This is wonderful, and I'm really going to savor every bite. And then it makes it easier to go back to your 80% your of being good. When you feel guilty, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to comfort yourself with something. So you go for macaroni and cheese, or you go for something else that's, that's um, high glycemic. So if you feel good about it, you're less likely to do that. Um, beans, legumes, and especially lentils are underutilized in our diet. If you go to um, Asia, if you go to the Middle East, lentils, they'll, they'll give you 16 ways to serve lentils and it'll all be at one meal and it'll all be delicious and everyone, every dish will taste different. Learn to love those, those lentils. Lentils in particular lower our, 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 pardon me, they lower our acidity and raise our pH. It's one of the few foods that if you're highly acidic and you eat half a cup of lentils, you will bring your pH into a normal range and improve your pain and improve your mitochondrial function. Avocados are another good food, and sweet potatoes. So that's actually a nice combination of, of foods. Um, avoid eating out. Uh, try to get used to cooking at home. Uh, my trick for that is, again, when I cook meals at home, if I'm making a big pot of curry, a big pot of lentil soup, whatever it is I'm making, I'll make more than I know I'm going to eat. I'll put it in the freezer. It'll be there for another meal. And that way I don't have to be cooking every day, but I can have home-cooked meals. And sometimes, I mean, I have, I'm the queen of the 20-minute prep meal. I mean, I used to come home uh, to my three kids and husband and after working a full day, and as long as I had shopped appropriately beforehand, I could put together a home-cooked meal in 20 minutes that, was, that people liked eating and that was very nutritious. It doesn't have to be time-consuming. It takes longer to cook it, it, to, like it stays in the oven or on the stove, but the prep time can be quick if you're organized. Moderate caffeine. Uh, a cup a day, uh, tea, it's open season on tea, and, and there's mixed reviews of caffeine. Most people do fine with some caffeine. Be careful of too much caffeine because it does leach calcium from, the, from muscles and bones. Um, soda, I'm, I just, it's a no soda. For my patients, that, that's the one thing I just outright say no to. And so many people come in with soda on their, uh, in their diet as a, as a staple in their diet. Uh, but if they will take some time off, if they'll take 30 days off of soda, they come back and they say, I can't believe how much better I feel. This really did make a difference. There is so much garbage in that. And that, we're not talking about plain soda water that's flavored. Uh, now, if you, I put pomegranate juice or grape juice or something, some high uh, antioxidant juice into plain soda water, you need a little bit of the juice and a lot of the soda water, you have your flavor. Um, but it's the highly processed um, uh, sodas that are extremely uh, chemical-laden chemical and uh, a source of excess calories, and if not calories, then aspartame and sucralose, equally bad. Crystal Light, I hate mentioning brand names, but uh, it's, uh, it's aspartame and sucralose, so you don't want that either. Um, kick sugar addiction. Uh, reduce animal product consumption. I tell people three ounces three times a week, basically just to shock them, because many of them are eating that at breakfast. Um, now, we're, you know, there's a lot being, being said about paleo. Paleo diet, number one, is bad for the planet, because to raise a pound of beef, you're putting a lot of carbon into the air. Uh, we're using up a lot of land, and, uh, and, and if the rest of the world ate like us, we would have run out of oxygen, I think, in 2000 uh, was, was the estimate. Um, uh, animal protein is overrated. Uh, most of the nutrition that we get comes from things that grow in the ground. Uh, we can actually do fine without any animal protein. You need uh, a little bit of CoQ10 additionally and some B12. You might need some micronutrients uh, added into your diet, but we can do perfectly well as vegans. And I'm not promoting veganism per se, but there's a lot, you know, when you're eating the top of the food chain, you're getting the, you're getting the top load of, of, um, of pesticides, of contaminants of all kinds. You're getting more contaminated food even when it's organic because our earth is contaminated. 
So it's better to eat organic than non. And if you're not familiar with the environmental working groups, uh, Clean 15 and Dirty Dozen, go on their website, uh, print out those lists, take them to the grocery store with you. If it's the Dirty Dozen, do not eat the food unless it's organic. If it's uh, Clean 15, you can eat the food even if it isn't organic because we don't use heavily pesticide, we don't heavily pesticide those foods. Um, become familiar with the lists they have of fish, which fish have higher uh, mercury levels, higher PCB levels and contamination. So those things do become more and more important. We're seeing pain, chronic pain and fibromyalgia in younger and younger age groups. And I think part of it is because the, the younger generations, I mean, my parents ate organic most of their life because that's what was available. Um, I had the benefit of less than uh, pesticides and, and contaminants than my children have had. Each generation gets exposed to more and more because we have all these, these chemicals. Yes? Uh, so the question is about gas-producing foods and uh, beans and legumes. Lentils do less production of gas than beans, um, but it is a matter of uh, having the microbiome be uh, adapted to it. So if you start people with a tiny little bit, you know, start with a tablespoon, get used to it, gradually increase the amount. They can take um, enzymes as well that will help them to uh, digest those foods better. Eating slowly. Uh, having adequate stomach acid. Uh, another trick that's great is um, a, a, a tea, somewhere between a teaspoon and, and a tablespoon of apple cider vinegar before your meals because that speeds gastric emptying and it also speeds, um, it improves um, uh, uh, the production and the secretion of pancreatic digestive enzymes. And so you'll digest your food more fully. Um, so that's, a, that's actually a great remedy for heartburn. So you kind of think you've got heartburn, you're going to take acetic acid, which is in, in uh, apple cider vinegar. Is the, how's that going to work? It doesn't work for everybody, but for a good portion of people, it does. Uh, yes? Nutritional medical foods is another whole topic. I think they can be very, very useful uh, for people who, whose digestion is really not working well. Uh, you can do some very good quality uh, medical foods uh, that can give them their nutrition, decrease their, their inflammation, can be very, very effective. Uh, yes. They can be very useful for chronic pain as well. And I mean, if you go to, I mean, Germany has a very long tradition of using uh, proteolytic enzymes for pain, and they can also be very, very effective. And I haven't gone into that here. Have you any comments on the phytosomal preparations of curcumin and other? So, phytosomal um, or liposomal uh, uh, production of curcumin is, is uh, very well absorbed. It is, however, curcumin and not the full turmeric. So we need both. The curcumin is excellent for pain and inflammation, but it is the turmeric that's good for the neuroplasticity of the brain. So we haven't, I haven't seen studies yet on whether the curcumin also causes new brain cell formation, new nerve cell formation in the hippocampus. Uh, it has been shown that turmeric, whole turmeric does. So there's place for both of them. But uh, the, the, um, uh, the Mariva forms of, of uh, curcumin are absorbed at 30 times the rate of, uh, of regular turmeric, so they can be very useful. Yes? Um, the studies that I have read, and I've read num many of the review studies, the consistently positive results happen around two to three grams minimum. So the studies that are using, pardon me? What does that mean? Tea, about a teaspoon. So if, you're, if they're using 600 milligrams, 700 milligrams of it, um, they'll, have, uh, they'll have positive results, but not as, as statistically significant. If you want statistical significance, you get up into the higher doses. But again, that doesn't mean that everybody needs them. So some of those people who are reacting to the lower doses are having good reactions, and people have to find their own levels. But 
for, for uh, consistently good responses. What I do with people is I tell them to make the, uh, the golden milk because when they come in to me, I'm a, I'm a tertiary care uh, pain clinic. I want them to have good results faster rather than, than later. Um, and so I'll tell them to make the golden milk and take a teaspoon of the paste, which has a heaping teaspoon of it, which has about two to three grams, twice a day in a beverage. And it can be in warm water, it can be in, uh, in uh, almond milk or anything that they'd like to put it into or tea. Um, and, and do that as a baseline. Do that for a week and see how good they get with that. And then if they want to, they can lower the dose or they can increase the dose. But most people find that that's a really good dose. Some, some will go down to once a day and still have good results. I have a question here. Do you have any comment about helmet therapy? And, you know, remediation of the you know what? No, and I haven't done the reading on that, and I'd love to learn about it. So this is Hellman therapy for the gut uh, for improving the microbiome. Yes? What's your website? Uh, HeatherTickMD.com. Just my name, HeatherTickMD.com. That's my website. Sorry, that was the, um, the question was, what, what's my website? Um, so risks of, of integrative medicine compared to the risks of standard of care is very, very low. Feeding people vegetables is not a high risk. You know, I guess feeding them legumes if they're peanut allergic could be high risk, but you know, that's, that's a pretty obvious one. Um, and then just one last thing on micronized progesterone, because this is a topic to watch in the future, even though it's not dietary. Uh, it does come from yams, uh, but there are, they're, they're neuroprotective, and there is a role in pain treatment and in insomnia for micronized progesterone. So I, rec I recommend reading, and I've given you some references here. Um, so if, if I had a drug that I could give you that reduced 93% of diabetes, 81% of heart attacks, 50% of strokes, and 36% of cancers, would you take it? Would you give it to all your patients? Yes, resounding yes, I would certainly take it. And so this was done in the, the, the EPIC study, the European Perspective Investigation into Cancer and Nutrition. And they found that over 7.8 years, they could reduce this amount of disease and pathology by having four, four behavioral characteristics, four, behavior, four behaviors, not smoking, eating a vegetable, the diet I was describing, a, a diet, a Mediterranean diet, basically having a BMI under 30, and exercising not even briskly, moderately for half an hour a day or three and a half hours a week. Those four behaviors over seven and a half years gives this amount of improvement in health. Think of what we could do for our healthcare costs. Think of what we could do for our personal lives in terms of improvement of quality of life. And what happens if you do this for 15 years? I'm sure it just gets better. Yes? Yeah. What's your take on that? Um, it's true. In many, in many Mediterranean countries, there is a lot of yogurt consumed. Um, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a dairy person, um, uh, particularly, but uh, some yogurt is one of the things that I do like uh, once in a while. Um, I think it depends on, on how people react to it. Yeah, it's not, it's not, exactly. It's plain yogurt. It's, it's uh, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a different product than what we see in the supermarket here. Yeah. So, I'm asking, have we been looking for the answers in the right places? So, I don't know if you can see it. There's the photographer, very, very focused. And so sometimes we miss things when we're too focused on the wrong things. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. We also tend to give um, our cattle grains, which creates a highly inflammatory profile in the meat as well. And as well, so this was a comment about the Holstein cow and the uh, the inflammatory components within the cow. Um, I was once at a conference, um, and uh, somebody stood up and said, "We're we're going to remake beef. We have this great idea for these factory farms. We're going to feed them the um, the waste." 
products from fish farming because they're high in omega-3s and that way the cow's milk will have more omega-3s. You know, whoever heard of cows wanting to eat fish or fish products like fish remnants? And, and so a farmer stood up and he said, I have a better idea. If you feed grass to cows, they have high omega-3s in their milk and in their beef. And, and that is true. If you have a grass-fed cow, free-range grass-fed, it's almost as good as fish in terms of the profile of omega-3s. Yes? Uh, there's an excellent article that's listed here. It's by Yao, Y-A-O. It's in gastroenterology, I think, in year 2010. And um, it talks about how you get people off of PPIs because with the increased gastrin secretion that you get from being on a PPI, it's like having your foot on the gas pedal to the metal, like just way down, you're, you're flooring it. And so as soon as you stop the PPI, you start to overproduce acid until your body figures out you don't need to do that anymore. It lowers the gastrin levels and you start to create normal doses. So it's a matter of using the old-fashioned ways of treating heartburn. So elevate the head of the bed, don't eat at bedtime, uh, cut back on coffee and fats, um, and any other foods that happen to irritate you because, frankly, one diet does not fit all. Uh, in, in spite of what I've just said about what I think is a good diet, you know, there are parts of the world where there are primitive diets that are all vegetable and parts where it's all blubber and those people thrived for, for you know, thousands of years. So um, we have different genetics. Now we've all mixed up our genetics, so we, it's hard to figure out what our best diet is, but people should go by what, uh, what feels healthiest for them. Using the old-fashioned antacids, they can go on ranitidine for a while, and with the purpose of eventually coming off of it, they can go on the old-fashioned Maalox. I tell them to keep Maalox by the bedside and swig it all night long if they need to, every hour, and just get through the withdrawal period of the PPI. Yep. Um, L-glutamine can be wonderful to help heal the gut, yes. So uh, L-glutamine is, uh, is it's a, I mean, it's a fairly common amino acid in our diet, but it does seem to be good for uh, healing the gut and for, for neuropathic pain as well. So it's a good one to try for uh, peripheral neuropathies. Yeah. Thank you.